Good morning and welcome to ULEAD, the news and current affairs from Dalhousie and the University of King's College, nestled on unceded, unsurrendered Mi'kmaq territory. I'm your host, Carly Schogner. This week, a special focus on law, rights, and what efforts Dalhousie Shulik Law members are doing to address current cultural inequalities with our future lawyers. For the organizers of last weekend's 2018 Idea Law Conference, they decided what a better way to start with a lawyer that has supported the rights of Canada's Omar Khadr. But first, late Tuesday night, Dalhousie Student Union announced its election results for 2018. With the results comes a first Mi'kmaq president, Aaron Prosper. Returning as Vice President Academic and External Affairs, Masuma Khan remains in her position. For Vice President Finance and Operations, we have Chantal Khoury, Vice President Internal, Anne Sharon Dwyer, Vice President Student Life, Corey Larson, Board of Governors Representative, Kathleen Olds, Arts and Social Science Representative is Fatima Beydoun, Black Student Community Representative, Malunge Katsu, International Student Community Representative, Lovepreet Singh Dillon, Management Representative, Catherine Van Helden, Students with Disabilities Representative, Candace Brisk. Out of the referendum questions during the elections, pharmacy levy increase and commerce levy increased. It did pass. The CKDU levy increase and the Ennisburg increase did not pass. Stay tuned next week for interviews from some of the Dalhousie's new elected members. Fabian Soares Amaya is a co-organizer of Idea Law 2018. I spoke with him in studio. Welcome, Fabian. Thank you. Thank you, Carly. I'm uh, yeah, happy to be here. Thanks. So um, do you mind just telling me a little about uh, where it came about? Sure. So Idea Law uh, is a conference at uh, Shulk School of Law at Dalhousie, and it happens every two years. Uh, the first year it happened was in 2004, and essentially it's a conference on ideas of social justice um, in the legal system. So the topics have been really different over the, over the last 14 years um, just because law affects everything. So, I mean, in the past, there's been topics about sex work, about reconciliation, about the environment. Uh, there's been a lot of really different conferences. The last two have kind of been a bit broader in terms of taking several different issues and talking about a bunch of different things that may have some interconnection but that aren't necessarily under one specific theme. But typically, it's about how the law could be doing a better job of bringing better outcomes to more people. Is it specifically for uh, law students, or is it open to everyone? No, definitely not. It's, uh, it's, it's super open. We'd love to have as many people out there as possible. Uh, one of the problems, I think, with well, legal education more broadly is that we're pretty uh, insulated within the law school, and so it's, it's really whenever we can have more conversations with more people aren't in the legal system, when they're not lawyers, they're not law students, I think that's a really positive thing for uh, getting law students to think a bit more broadly. So Friday's keynote has Omar Cotter's lawyer, Dennis, Dennis Edney. Dennis Edney. Um, how did that come about? That's a, that's a really funny uh, question. So actually, we were uh, we were kind of spitballing a little bit about some different people who we thought might be great keynotes. And then we had uh, a few that we were thinking about. And one of the co-organizers, Emily, she said, well, like, well, okay, I'd love to have Dennis Edney. I think it'd be really cool. And we're like, all right, well, you know, We'll all go our own ways, and we'll see. We'll put, reach out and kind of see what the initial, if it's a positive indication from them or not. And she sent us an email later that day. I was like, "Well, I just cold called him, and he said yes. So I guess uh, sounds pretty good." <laughs> and so we we're all pretty excited about that. Speaking for Saturday, uh, which panel are you most looking forward to? Well, that's that's a tough question. I don't know if I'm most looking forward there. I think they're all going to be uh, really interesting in really unique ways. 
The one I've had the most involvement in organizing is uh, the panel on incarceration and access to justice. So that's our uh, starts on Saturday at 9 a.m. And that one's a lot of different people who have some expertise within the, the, the prison system in Canada talking about how poorly the prison system treats people who are imprisoned and some things that could be cha- uh, changed about it. Um, so we've got Professor Adeline F. Tene from the Schulich School of Law, whose um, area of expertise is in health in prisons. Um, we've got Emma Halpern, who is the executive director of Elizabeth Fry, who will be dealing with uh, how uh, gender dynamics are, how a woman's experience in prison is different from a man's experience. And there's actually some, some discrimination in the prison system based on what women might perceive differently from what men might perceive in terms of services and access, just because there are so many fewer prisons for women, so that impacts them. And then Corey Wright will be speaking about his own experience within the prison system. And Benjamin Perryman, he's the lawyer for Abdul Abdi. And so he'll be speaking about sort of how the prison system affects uh, people who are not born in Canada and some of the intersectionality between different prison issues. So the next one is, uh, it'll be a privacy panel. So it's issues in Canadian privacy law. So we've got a bunch of different experts, uh, lawyers and academics and someone from government talking about what are the issues in privacy that you've seen throughout your career and how is that changing? Because a lot of these people have been working in privacy law for 20 years or so and obviously, I don't want to say intrusions but the nature of what Canadians expect in terms of their privacy and their their information and who's consuming it, who, who can see it um, what information is being put out by you into the world. I think our society's expectations of that are changing and our legal system isn't quite keeping up um, and so I think you're going to have some really interesting things to say about what the future holds there. In the afternoon, our third panel is about uh, race and the law. So the intergenerational trauma and impacts of the law, that, um, specifically on Indigenous Nova Scotians and African Nova Scotians. Uh, so we've got four speakers, Professor Naomi Metallic from the, the School of Law again, um, Jean Carla Francis, she's from Member Two First Nations, she works at Nova Scotia Legal Aid. We've got Robert Wright, clinical social worker who's done cultural competency assessments for the courts. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have the fourth person, L. Jones um, from Mount St. Vincent University, who um, is really involved in specifically in the prison system, but she's really knowledgeable about the way that uh, law and society more generally have created institutional structures of oppression that impact African Nova Scotians. So they'll be talking about how these, well, the modern impact for sure as well, like how are things currently uh, not working for Indigenous and African Nova Scotian people, but also sort of how do the layers of law over generations continue to affect people. It's important for law students and lawyers to become more culturally competent, and I think that uh, having these conversations and, and hearing these hearing these voices are uh, an important step in becoming more culturally competent. Our, we have a, our last one as well um, is on uh, disability in the law. So recently, uh, last year, I believe it would be two years ago, uh, the Incompetent Persons Act was found to be unconstitutional um, after a challenge by Landon Webb, uh, represented by Dalhousie Legal Aid Services. And so there's a new act now, the Adult Capacity Act, but a lot of disability rights activists um, and disabled people are saying that the act doesn't really go far enough so it's going to be a conversation about um, what's going on with the act, how could it be improved, should it be changed again. Is there anything I missed that you wanted to add? Yeah, I mean, I think that idea law is important for for two reasons, I guess. Um, one that's specific to to those in the field of law. I mean, I, I enjoy school there. It's really interesting, but it's so, so insular. We spend all of our time in one building with people, and we, we talk about law and legal gossip and legal jobs and we talk about really really narrow topics all the time and so i do think that these kinds of events are really important and there's a lot of also there's a lot of social justice work that goes on at doubt like uh dfla the feminist organization debilsa dilsa the indigenous black students the environmental uh, law student society there's a lot of social justice work already going on but it is important for us to consistently remind ourselves 
what is the purpose of this? And even if you're not planning to work in something that's, you know, a stereotypical, air quotes, uh, social justice field and air quotes, um, I think you need to be thinking about what is the impact of this of this chosen area. So this is really important to kind of keep that in your mind. And then secondly, I just think more generally for all people, it's important for us to be kind of interacting with the world a bit more and participating in events like this. Thank you. Thanks so much, Carly. Bye. You're listening to You Lead on CKDU 88.1 FM. If you're curious about radio or want to share stories, come by and volunteer with our studio located on the fourth floor of the Dalhousie Student Union Building. There are not many lawyers in Canada, or around the world for that matter, who have committed their lives to 15 years on a case pro bono or without charge. Dennis Edney is a Scottish-Canadian lawyer best known for representing Canadian Omar Cotter to the Supreme Court of Canada. Cotter was imprisoned at the age of 15 after allegedly throwing a grenade during a firefight that resulted in the death of an American soldier during the United States invasion of Afghanistan. He was the youngest prisoner to be held in, by the United States in Guantanamo Bay. After the Supreme Court ruling last summer, Edney and the Government of Canada settled. I had the opportunity to sit with Mr. Edney before he gave a talk at Dalhousie's Idea Law Conference to speak on his year's reflections and what is next. You know, you've received a, a law degree from Northumbria in 2013. You received recognized by the John Humphrey Center for Peace and Human Rights. Where did your focus and commitment on human rights first begin? As a working class boy from Scotland, you develop a chip on your shoulder. I watched my father struggle every day for work. He'd be employed one day and unemployed the next day, and um, he, his job was to make sure that we were fed and taken care of. And so I was pretty aware of the, of the class system that was in Britain. And so I guess that was part of, of my identity. I also loved the, the poetry and the writing of Robert Burns, Scotland's preeminent poet, where he talked about the universality of man. And so I was brought up with an attitude that um, we're all the same, you know, we're not any different, and we should be kind to each other. Out of all the possible careers, why did you choose law? I had a number of careers before I went to law, and then the economy went bad, and I'd always thought that I'd like to go to university, because I've, if there's one thing that I, one characteristic that I had that's assisted me was I loved reading. I, I'm an assiduous reader. I can't um, feel happy if I haven't got paper to read. So speaking of law schools, um, recently was speaking with an Indigenous legal aide, and some of the things that she noticed is that while law schools focus on you know knowing the law, they often are not teaching about the cultural context of things. What would you recommend for s- law schools? One of my favorite universities is University of San Francisco. I've um, been down there a number of times giving lectures and every student is involved in some real client uh, whether it's a death row client or whatever they, they're working at, um, in real time and so that is why we encourage universities to have clinics so that people and the students understand that um, it's, this is not just an, an intellectual exercise um, but it's, it's reality it's no different 
in the lectures I've given to students. When I'm talking about the Omar Caro case and the many legal um, cases that I had, um, was involved in, both in the U.S. Supreme Court, the Canadian Supreme Court, um, Guantanamo, if you want to call it a court. And so I see that as a, a real way of teaching. Well, as big a case as Omar Caro is, it's not any more important than some lady who's been kicked out of the, of the uh, out of a room a rooming house by the landlord because she can't pay the rent. He's holding her clothes, so she can't get a job. And so we've done. And that's the reality that we need to teach to students. So, mentioning Omar Khadr, the case has gone through. You know, four prime ministers later. What have been some of the barriers, but also the milestones that you've experienced with regards to dealing with different political governments? What are some of your reflections from that? It's a good question. Generally, I um, have a lack of faith in politicians. I've spoken to many. I remember being going to Argentina to work with the chief prosecutor and, uh, and the the plane stopped off in Chile, and this voice says, Dennis, Dennis. And I turned around, and I won't tell your name, there was a, a well-known politician, and he said, Dennis, I've been meaning to contact you. I said, well, hell, it took you a couple of years then to contact me, because here we are now. From the Liberal governments at the outset, they were responsible for the incarceration of Omar Khadr for 10 years. It's not me just saying that, the Supreme Court of Canada said that. Because under the Liberal government, they sent in officials to work with the CIA in a prison called Guantanamo that was being universally criticised throughout the world by human rights organisations. I had a case that cried out for justice, not just because we have a Canadian boy stuck in a place that, had, that was denounced as a torture chamber, but, but also because we have all kinds of international laws in place that require governments such as Canada to assist an adult in, in trouble abroad and in particularly a child abroad. And neither the Liberal government or the Conservative government made any efforts to mitigate on behalf of Omar Khadr. Instead, what they did was they toadied up to the Americans, and in doing so, they committed an incredible crime. The worst type of offense that you could do in criminal law, it was to participate in the torture of a child, or of anybody. And then they fought me for five years to hide the fact that they had done so. And so my um, dealings with politicians and governments itself is don't trust them. They're there for their own benefits. They're there to get ahead. They may preach to you that they're there for you, but my experience, and it's pretty extensive, of 15 years of dealing with politicians was some were nice and never heard from again. I want to get on the legal aspect of a child soldier. I mean, I think that over these years, there's been, you know, multiple aspects. There's been yourself uh, here at home talking about uh, the child soldiers, but there's also 
the discussion around, you know, the Romeo Dallaire Child Soldiers Initiative and all the things that he's been doing abroad. And I think that, you know, for, you know, public discourse, that was, I would find like the one thing that Canadians were not seeming to make the connection is, is defining child soldier. What are your selections on like some of the aspects of, you know, the gray areas of internationally defining in a case, what is a child soldier? And also, I mean, the legal age around I think your question makes me agree that Canadians or the average Joe public really doesn't have a real understanding of what leads to being of someone called a child soldier. I remember speaking with David Crane, who was in, who was on the, the trials dealing with um, child soldiers. He was the uh, chief prosecutor in Sierra Leone. And he talked about these young kids from 12 years age of and onwards who had fed drugs and all kinds of, of alcohol and removed them from any semblance of, um, of humanity. And the horrors that these young people committed, we just don't, we don't seem to grab it that, that a young person is dominated by a senior person particularly at very young age, with a lack of education, and how it could be anybody. You see it every day in a very small way when your kid goes out with, with friends that you don't like because you're worried about the influence of those kids on your son or daughter. Just the same thing, except with child soldiers, there's also that fear, that fear of being harmed if you challenge the person who has control of you. I remember asking Omar why he didn't run away. And he said he couldn't. If he'd run away, he would have been killed by some of the villagers because they, they, for them to help him would have been to dishonor the people that he had been living with in the compound. After the national, international uh, July and August discourse around the settlement, can you describe uh, what you were feeling around media, you know, do you feel like people are starting to understand, you know, out of all these years? Not the slightest. When I took on the case of Omar Kader, I had no idea that I was going to spend 15 years representing a client, and nor did I understand that I was going to end up almost penniless, spending money fighting, because each and every government challenged me and appealed after every case I won. I didn't have not lost a single case in 15 years against this Canadian government. When I went to Guantanamo, I realized that I had to reach out to the Canadian public. Uh, but when I went to Guantanamo, I understood it to be a lawless place, an evil place, and I, and I wanted the Canadian public to know what it stood for because can the Canadian government wasn't saying anything about it and Harper himself, that he talked about Guantanamo providing due process. And so in my travels from one end of the country to the other for years and years and years, I felt that I had gotten through to a, a great part of the Canadian society about a child being in a hellhole like Guantanamo and to be supported. And statistics seem to, to uphold that. It was my intention to eventually, at the end of the day, once I got him out, 
I wanted to have a trial. I wanted to make those politicians and those Canadian officials who were, went to Guantanamo and participate in the torture of Omar Khadr, I wanted them to be accountable. I also wanted to make former RCMP um, personnel be accountable because under the criminal code, it's, a, it's an offence to commit torture. And so I went to court, the federal court, to get an um, expedited trial. And I knew that the, the government of the day would delay it as long as they could. And the, it was the judge who suggested perhaps we should settle. And of course we did settle. I was delighted to settle on one hand was because it brought an end to this lengthy saga that allowed me to be free, to breathe air and not have to worry about Omar Khadr every day of my life. He's now moved on, he's been educated, and so I'm pleased. Uh, but I received hundreds upon hundreds of emails from Canadians and people throughout the world and I can tell you that there's ones throughout the world, as far away as China, far away as Hong Kong, all thank me for the work. The vast majority of emails were people angry at me because he had gotten money. I even had, I had some men call me at two in the morning and just um, threatening and, um, and, and full of vulgarity in speaking to me. And then there were ladies who called me, elderly ladies, who were so nice on the phone, but they were angry about him getting money. And when I tried to challenge them about what did you know did, about what the Supreme Court's rulings, three rulings, um, what did you know about Omar Khadr? You know, no one wanted to take that on. What it was, they were bigoted. They, they were bigoted on different levels. Bigoted because He's a Muslim, perhaps. Bigoted because they think he's a terrorist, which is completely untrue, and that lies at the, at the doorstep of many journalists in Canada and our government. I, I saw the underbelly of Canada. It's not pretty. It's not that deep. It, um, so we can't um, think of ourselves as much better than our neighbors south of the border. I've been a bencher for the Law Society for nine years. I've now ex my term is now over. You can only do three terms. So I remember when the, the excitement I felt when Omar Khadr was released out on bail in my possession to come and stay with me. And every year, the Law Society of Alberta takes the benches to Jasper Park Lodge where we um, have meetings, but we also have a lot of fun and good dinners and stuff like that. And I was asked not to bring Omar Khadr. And in all the years that that I have fought for Omar Khadr, I've not had a single help from any law society. Um, when I look at my journey, where are those um, Christians or Muslim mosques or your, or your synagogues? I saw civil society pretty apathetic. And I had good friends who kept saying to me, take care of yourself. Pretty selfish type of, of advice. I had help from some, some very good people, but very few, a handful, I'd say. What, what is next? What, what is next for you? I've been working in New York for the last um, um, year and a half. I've been involved in two terrorist trials, 
one that's going to be publicized in the, in, in the media at some point. So that's what I've been doing. I've been able to get ahead, and do cases, and bring some money in, and, um, and I get calls all day, every day, at least an average of five or six a day, people looking for me to save them. They, they have no money, it's all pro bono they wish, and I'm exhausted by buying, because I like to be polite to people on the phone, and I like to give them a bit of advice. And so there are so many people out there who are in need of help, um, but I'm only one guy. And I'm sort of kind of happy to be in New York. Halifax's poet, professor, and human rights activist Al Jones was one of the attendees of Dennis Edney's talk, as well as speaker at Saturday's conference. Host of CKD's Black Power Hour, her most recent efforts have been with Nova Scotia's Abdul Abdi in stopping his deportation. I spoke with her after the talk. What are some of your reflections from the talk? I think it was powerful in hearing these very direct stories of what happened to Omar Carter, Uh, particularly important now because, of course, this misinformation about that settlement and the way particularly the conservative government went into the states and started drumming up resentment of that. When I was at Trudeau's town hall, there was a very Islamic phobic question directed about that. So I thought it was important just in that way as hearing from the source. Um, I guess what I took away from it, and particularly in the context of one of the questions asked, was that uh, for people that, you know, are talking about free speech and advocacy, like free speech and free expression entirely about the rights of white men, perhaps what they could have got out of that talk is that it's actually the actual violations of free speech and expression that are taking place are taking place upon the bodies of Muslim men, upon the bodies of black people. You know, Guantanamo represents this. So I think that perhaps if you're one of those people that talks about free expression, how it's being crushed in Canada by SJWs, perhaps what you could have taken out of that speech is, no, these are the actual real violations of free speech and the things that people who are invested in social justice are actually fighting against. So I think it was important... I think particularly in this climate where there's this particular vision of the only people being oppressed or having speech oppressed in this world are, you know, white men who want to say racist things. And here's an example of the constant 15-year battle just to get some basic law and some basic justice. So I thought that was important. There are so many similarities in regards to, you know, your current, the current plight with with Abdul Abdi. Are there any insights into which uh, maybe either through Canadians to like understand through this particular case? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think just a couple of the areas that so obviously he addressed this growth of Islamophobia, the growth of a particular discourse of racism that's just very open in the public. Um, what he called sort of the underbelly of Canada. Those are all things that you see active in Abdul's case, right? So the particular reaction, I'm actually working on a story right now talking about how journalists are consistently elevating these very racist tweets onto their platforms and treating them as differences of opinion um, when they're actually validating things that are factually incorrect, right? So people saying stuff like, he could have applied for his own citizenship. It's like, actually, he couldn't, and journalists need to challenge that. So there's a particular way that a lot of this racist discourse is not only occurring, but then being legitimized and treated as just another side of the story. And this is part of what happens in this talk. Right, that Edney talks about like the kind of responses you get and the kind of ignorance that people sort of willfully engage in around these kind of cases. So um, that's definitely something yeah, that I experience all the time in, in doing this kind of work and that we see very much with Abdul, the kind of um, comments that are made, deport them all, start with one, get the rest of you. Um, you know, this kind of, the same kind of very extreme reaction. So that definitely hit home. And then, yeah, just that sense of what it takes to, to fight 
these things in a Canada that both maintains the image that we're not like that, and that's with that part of what he was saying, and particularly as it relates to Abdul. And obviously, yeah, the same kind of issues where Canada presents particular ways as this democratic, multicultural country. And then when you look time and time and time again, there's these particular injustices upon Muslim bodies, upon black bodies, upon indigenous bodies, the same people that are constantly being abused in these particular ways. And there's a complete sweeping of under it of the rug, right? So that unless you work very, very hard to bring those issues to the public and then work very, very hard to fight those things and then get all kinds of abuse for saying them, that's an experience I'm certainly familiar with and that anybody who uh, works on these issues would also identify with. So I thought that was powerful as well. You can see Al Jones on Tuesday from 6 to 8 in the Dow Student Union Building for activism on words and song. And on a Wednesday, if you want to learn more about the impact of drones on human lives in war zones, check out King's third, last, Automaidens lecture, War in the Age of Intelligent Machines, at 7 p.m. at the Scotiabank Auditorium at St. Mary's University. Up next, The Signal, CKDU Surprise, and Democracy Now! I'll leave you with the music and, and activist that has been with us for decades, along with former Halifax, Nova Scotia College of Art and Design grad. This is Buffy St. Marie and Tanya Tagak with You Got to Run, Spirit of the Wind. <laughs>